Amen. Thank you, worship team, for leading us so beautifully this morning. Let's thank them. Yeah. Welcome to Advent. This is the time of the Christian year uh, where we intentionally move into this season of waiting, of anticipating, and of hoping as we look forward to the arrival of Jesus at Christmas. Throughout the centuries, churches around the globe and Christians around the globe have set this time aside to sink back into and orient ourselves into the larger story of God's work through humanity and bringing about the redemption of the world. We mark out this time. Uh, we use images like, uh, like an Advent wreath to help us kind of mark the different points along the journey as we are waiting for the arrival of Jesus at Christmas. It pushes against our, our natural tendency to want to rush ahead to the manger and instead reminds us that humanity was waiting and longing for the moment that gets fulfilled when Jesus shows up, the arrival of Jesus, the incarnation of Jesus, where God himself becomes one of us to rescue us from the power of sin and death, to set us free, to bring us into reconciled relationship with him. So that's what we're doing here uh, together. We're joining in with that larger story. We're remembering how it how it felt for the people of Israel to wait for the fulfillment of God's promises to them. And we long with anticipation as well for the future fulfillment of all things when Jesus will restore everything and set it all right. So we wait and we hope and we walk on this journey together. On the Advent uh, candle, thank you to DeMont and Toya for lighting that today. Appreciate that so much. Led so beautifully in that. Uh, but as we walk around that, that Advent wreath, we started with the candle of hope. And then today we lit the candle of peace. Uh, next week we will light the candle of joy and then the candle of love. And at the center of it all, the fulfillment and the reality of the arrival of Jesus, uh, we will light the Christ candle together and celebrate his arrival. As we were preparing uh, for this and uh, I was going out to get the candles because uh, you do. There are places that sell these things. All right. So uh, I was going and looking for Advent candles and uh, I had one of my sons with me. My son, Sam, 10 years old. And as we were going and I was explaining what we were doing, uh, I was like, Sam, you know, each one of the candles, poor, poor kid. All right. Son of a preacher. It's like he's going to get those lectures all the time. All right. So I'm like, you know, each candle stands for something. Do you remember what each of the words stands for? And he was like, yeah, yeah, let me guess, Dad. Let me guess. Uh, hope, joy, peace, love, and grace. And I was like, that was amazing, all right? You added grace. It's not one of the candles, but that's bonus points, all right? <laughs> really good. We're, we're going to let the wreath just represent grace, all right? We're going to go with that. And I was like, wow, that's awesome. I said, how did you remember that, buddy? Because I always have to look it up again each year to make sure I don't miss a word, right? I'm like, how did you remember that? And he said, well, Dad, I just tried to guess what words I thought Jesus probably said a lot. 
And I'm like, well done, all right? Well done. And that's what we're celebrating here, all right? Hope, peace, joy, love, Christ at the center of it all. Not just words that Jesus would probably say a lot, but words that Jesus actually became. As John tells us in John chapter 1, the word, the organizing principle of the universe, the one who makes sense of all things, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Not just things that Jesus would probably say, but words that Jesus became in the flesh. Today we're in Luke chapter 1. We're going to keep walking through Luke, as you know, over these next several months together, about five months that we're going to be walking through the gospel of Luke. And Luke tells the Advent story so beautifully. We turn to his words this time every year uh, and lean on his words as he tells us the story of the build up towards the arrival of Jesus. So we're going to be in Luke chapter one, uh, start with verse 26 and go through verse 38. In the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to, jo to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Come on. Yes, Linda, bring it. I love it. Awesome. Mary was greatly troubled at the greeting, at these words, and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. And even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who was said to be barren is in her sixth month. For nothing is impossible with God. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May it be to me as you have said. And then the angel left her. Jesus, thank you for the reality of these words, for the hope that we have in them, for the peace that we have in them, for the joy that we have, for the love that's possible, because this is who you are. You became this in the flesh. Direct us today. Speak clearly to us today. Encourage us and challenge us where we need it. We're listening. We're open. For yours. To your name we pray. Amen. Amen. So we're going to move through uh, this passage uh, a little bit.
whenever I see Justin start walking up, I'm like, something is wrong, and this guy's going to fix it. All right? Everybody give it up for Justin. Justin is the man. All right. So, um, yeah, where was I? Where was I, Linda? Elizabeth? Yeah, there we go. All right, Elizabeth and Zechariah. So Elizabeth and Zechariah receive this promise that they're going to have a child. That child that is being referred to there is John the Baptist. Uh, John the Baptist is going to be Jesus's cousin. Uh, and they're going to have this ministry that gets shared and is overlapping. Uh, John the Baptist is the fulfillment of the ancient prophecies about how God is going to send a prophet like Elijah ahead of the Messiah when the Messiah comes. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Messiah prophecies. John the Baptist is the fulfillment of the Elijah prophecies. The prophet Isaiah says... Uh, there is a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the coming of the Lord. That is fulfilled in John the Baptist. That's his role. He gets called uh, the trailblazer, the pioneer, the one who goes before Jesus, sometimes called the forerunner of Jesus. And so in his prophetic work, he is calling people to be prepared, to get ready because the kingdom of God is at hand. And he begins with this message of repent, for the kingdom is at hand. Jesus picks that same message up at the beginning of his ministry and preaches that same message. Repent, for the kingdom of God is here. It is here. It has arrived. Repent is this word meaning to turn. Turn your hearts to God prepare yourselves, open yourselves up for what he is going to do and the, and the transformation that he is going to bring. So that's, that's who John the Baptist is. And I love how in this first, just first sentence even that we get in the passage today, the author Luke, uh, as we know, Luke is this historian. Uh, it's also believed that he was a, a physician uh, possibly a Gentile and not a Jewish person, which would make him the only non-Jewish person to be the author of any books in the New Testament. And so um, as he's telling this, we get a little glimpse of what we're in store for as we go through his book uh, throughout these next several months. In this one sentence, this historian is able to pack so much in. He gives us glimpses of Israel's history. Uh, he gives us this sense of geography. He gives us this depth of theology. All of this happening at the same time in this one sentence. Uh, one of the things that he points out and, and the importance of the geography that he points out here. He says that Mary is from Nazareth, a town in Galilee. And in both of those terms, Nazareth and Galilee, we get the sense, and the original readers would have known immediately that this action is beginning out on the margins, out beyond what is normally the center of activity and the center of action for the Jewish people. The temple is where? Where's God's temple located? Jerusalem. Okay, Jerusalem is the capital city that David himself establishes as the capital city. And, and so that is the center of the action. It's the center of the political action, 
of the religious action. That is where it's believed that the presence of God is living among his people in the temple. And yet when God starts to move in this story in a new way, he doesn't. he's not moving in Jerusalem. Like we talked about last week, Luke mentions Herod at the start and then moves right past him and says, yeah, that's where they, they thought the power was. But look where God decides to move and to reveal himself. It's out on the margins. It starts with this older couple moving and answering their prayer and answering the prayer of Israel on this large scale. And it's out in this nowhere town called Nazareth. This nowhere backwoods kind of town, Nazareth in Galilee. Galilee is not the center of the story most of the time. And so it's powerful when we see him moving like that. Mary is referred to as highly favored. And yet at this point in history, hardly anyone would have known who she was beyond her own community there. No one knew who she was beyond her own community. No one cared about Nazareth beyond those who lived there. Only those outside of Nazareth, the only reason that they cared about it is because it gave them an easy punchline. And that was it. And God shows up to this place and to this person that is barely noticed. And what is barely noticed actually becomes highly favored. And isn't that the reality for how God moves? You may think that you are not seen by anyone. You might be here today feeling completely invisible. You are not. You are not barely noticed. You are highly favored. He loves you and he sees you and he is moving for you today. Jesus throughout his ministry is going to be known as Jesus of Nazareth. And for some people, that's an immediate wall that's going to go up when they hear about Jesus of where? Of Nazareth? You're kidding me, right? There's no way this is the person that we have been waiting for. We, we even hear that in one of the Gospels where one of them says, can anything good come from Nazareth? That's the general consensus, all right? But Jesus of Nazareth, that's how he, cho- that's how he chooses to be known. And that's how he's known. Still today, he gets referred to in that way. Jesus of Nazareth. We would have no clue about this town except for Jesus. So now it's not just Jesus of Nazareth, but now we think of Nazareth of Jesus. It's the only reason you would ever want to visit there. All right. I, I, I got to go there one time. It was not impressive. All right. It was not impressive. Even now. It's so interesting that we still know the name of this town, Nazareth of Jesus. That's why we know it, because of the power of his life. Once again, you've heard us say this over and over again, but we're going to always keep coming back to this because it's a challenge that we keep needing to hear ourselves. I felt sharply critiqued in this from the Lord. Uh, The sense that I use the term so easily, I use the term margins. To describe other people. And I talk about people or populations or, or even places as being on the margins. And when I say that, I am publicly confessing that if I think someone else or someplace else is on the margins, that means I think I'm at the center of the page. 
And Jesus says, that's not how this story works. And when Jesus shows up in a place like this, he transforms the forgotten edges of the page from what we think of as the margins into the center of the story. And what we see as the margins, he sees as the center of the story because that's where he is. That's where he intentionally locates himself. And we get this just from this simple statement that Luke makes. Nazareth in Galilee. Translation, nowhere. And this is where he showed up. This is where he revealed himself in this powerful way. The forgotten edges of the page become the center of the story when Jesus gets his hands on them. That's why one of the challenges that we are embracing together uh, over Advent, we introduced this last week, and I want to encourage it again today. Uh, my younger brother, Josh, many of you know him. He's preached here multiple times before. Some of you have a friendship with Josh. Uh, I Let me just, I wasn't planning to say this, but one of the smartest people I've ever met, one of the most genuine followers of Jesus, I, I know, and he's my brother. All right, so I know him really well. He's the real thing. He is a chaplain at the Orange Correctional Center in Hillsborough. And uh, he has invited us to participate in uh, a Christmas gift uh, that, that he's helping to organize for the residents of the Correctional Center. And so what he's asking for us to do is to contribute. There are other churches in this, in this community that are going to contribute items uh, to each of these bags and gifts that are going to go to our neighbors there. Uh, and our role, he's invited us to give 200 tubes of toothpaste uh, to contribute to this gift. So I want to challenge us to do that. These are not inmates, they're residents, the term that we're going to use. And, and we're going to go beyond residents and we're going to say neighbors, our neighbors. And so let's show up there. And let's be a part of that. A group of people who feel so often feel forgotten. Let's help them remember that they are seen. They're not invisible. They're not hidden away. They're not forgotten. So as the story goes on, it says that the angel went to her, gave this greeting of greetings. You who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. And it says that Mary's response is that she was greatly troubled at this greeting. If an angel shows up to you, you're going to be troubled too. All right. Even if that's what you're praying for, Lord, just show me a really clear sign that an angel shows up and you're like too clear. All right. Too much. Pull back a little bit. But, but Mary is troubled by this and we would be too. There's so much here in what the angel Gabriel says to her. One of the statements that he makes is about Jacob's descendants. And I love this. Uh, we get the reference to David as well in this. So you get so much of Israel's history that starts to unfold in our own minds and in the minds of the people who are reading this and hearing this for the first time. But those, those names are so significant for their history. The name Jacob is deeply significant. Uh, Jacob is... Uh, is so you get Abraham and then you get Isaac and Isaac had Jacob and Esau. And so grandson of, of Abraham, this fulfillment, how God is fulfilling 
the promise to his people Israel. Uh, Jacob goes on to have 12 sons who become the tribes of Israel. Jacob is the figure who is a really shady figure through much of the story. Really, a very broken figure. And we get that told to us really plainly. None of those details held back. I love that about Scripture. It's very raw about the people that it's telling us about. It's not trying to airbrush any of this for us. And one of the things that we see happen in Jacob's story is that he also has this supernatural encounter where his eyes are open. Uh, he sees angels uh, descending and ascending, very similar to an experience that Mary is having here. He also is the one who has the moment where he wrestles with God through the night. And it's in that moment of wrestling when Jacob is begging God for a blessing, the blessing that God gives to him, along with a broken hip that causes him to limp for the rest of his life and to remember this encounter in a way that he could never get away from. He also gets a new name. Anybody know what the new name is that God gives to Jacob in that moment? Israel. Israel. A name that can mean wrestles with God. And this angel shows up to Mary and says, Greetings, you who are highly favored. I'm here to give you an announcement on behalf of the people who have wrestled with God throughout history. The thing that they have begged for and longed for and pleaded for is now becoming reality. And God has chosen you to help it. Amazing, incredible moment, incredible moment of this fulfillment of Israel's longing and hoping. For the rest of history, they take on this name of Israel, this reminder of a people who have wrestled with God and God is blessing them in the midst of that. When the angel let me just stop for a second and say this. If that's you, if you are one who wrestles with God, welcome to his family. Welcome to his family. He invites you to wrestle with this truth. He's not asking you to check your mind at the door. He's not asking you to check your intellect at the door. He's not asking you to leave your questions at the door. He's inviting those to come in. At times, like we said last week, there will be times when he challenges you to question your questions and to ask, are, are you using questions as a way to distance yourself and hide from him? Or are they really being used as a way of moving closer to him? Questions can be an invitation, actually, not not uh, that push you away from him, but an invitation that draw you even closer. Because even by asking the questions, you're making a faith declaration that you think he might actually have an answer. And he's inviting that. If you're wrestling with him, then that's the name he gave to his family. Welcome to the family that is allowed. He makes this statement to Mary, don't be afraid. You have found 
favor with God. God's favor is on you. This is beautiful. Oftentimes, and, and I hear this word get used so much in Christianity. Anybody familiar with this word in the in the culture of the churches that you have come from? Not too many. All right. I hear it used a lot. And most of the time, it gets used in association with hoping that God makes things easier for us. All right. Favor being this thing that we're just walking along and the doors are flying open for us. And God is just paving the way and making the way easy for us without scandal, without hardship, without pain. That is not what favor means. That is not what we're told in the scripture story. Favor is not about asking God to lift you out of it or lead you around it. Favor is about God being with you as he walks you through it. And we see that over and over again in the whole story of Scripture and in that scriptural imagination that's being planted down within us. The favor of God looks like Abraham being chosen. What an incredible gift. What an incredible blessing. And the favor says, Abraham, I'm choosing you. And now I'm asking you to leave your homeland, pick up your family and make a move to a place that I, I will tell you when you get there. Okay, but where where is it, Lord? To the place that I will show you. When will you show me when we get there? And then think about the hardship of Abraham's life. Absolutely, the blessing of God is all over Abraham's life and the favor of God. But it's not God just lifting him out or leading him around. It's God walking with him through it. You see that over and over again. What about Moses? How many leaders think, God, make me a leader like Moses? And then you read the story and you're like, never mind. Please don't do that. All right. But the favor of Moses, imagine being able to see God's hand move in such incredible ways, such clear miracles. And in what setting? In the setting of people who have experienced hundreds of years of slavery. And watching so much of the heartbreak that even flows out of those signs and symbols of the plagues that God reveals through Moses and then wandering through the desert for 40 years with a group of people who are constantly saying, I just want to go back. There's nothing easy about Moses' story. There's nothing easy about it. It's miraculous. It's filled with favor, but it ain't easy by any stretch of the imagination. What about David? Imagine having a prophet choose you and anoint you as God's chosen king. The rest of your siblings all lined up who always get picked before you. You get the last of whatever is left over and all your siblings then get lined up and the prophet walks down the line is like, nope, not that one. Nope, not that one. And you're like, yes, yes. And it gets to you. And the prophet says, this is the one that God has chosen. Favor, incredible favor. And then in the midst of that, imagine spending the next several years of your life running from the person who is currently king who wants to kill you because he doesn't want to give up the throne. You've been anointed by God as the king and you're hiding in caves. 
from an army that's trying to kill you? Think about it over and over again. Think about Esther. God, choose me like you chose Esther. Raise me up like you raised up Esther for such a time as this. Oh, what was Esther's story again? Oh, yes, yeah, she had to go into the throne room of the king and speak on behalf of marginalized. There's that word again. Marginalized in the eyes of other people. People at the risk of her very life, knowing that if the king didn't have grace on her in that moment, she was going to die. It's favor, but it's not leading you, just lifting you out or leading you around. It's walking through it. You see this over and over. So we hear people talking about favor and we even joke, and we even said this multiple times this morning, joking about your best life now, you know? And we say that quite a bit as a joke. But the favor of God doesn't look like that. The favor of God looks more like not special privileges, but a mantle of responsibility that comes with this invitation into surrender and into trust. Saying yes to that is more than worth it. Isn't this supposed to be peace candle? Sunday. It doesn't sound very peaceful, does it? But in the story of Jesus, as we know, peace doesn't mean the passive absence of conflict. It means the presence of God himself. That disruptive genius of the, the call and the prayer of Advent, God with us. That's what peace looks like. It's the embrace of the Father. It's being filled with the Holy Spirit to transform us. It's the abiding and empowering and defiant and disruptive presence of Jesus in our lives. That's what peace actually looks like. One of my favorite preachers of all time, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., said, Surrender is not weakness. It is upside-down strength. Surrender is not weakness. It is upside down strength. And we see this in Mary. She even asks this question. She does ask a question like Zechariah did, but you can see and you can hear there's a different kind of character in the question that she asks. Zechariah asks, how, how can I be sure of this? How can I trust you in this? Mary's question isn't like that. Mary's question is about logistics. She's like, you know how this works, right? How can this be? How? <laughs> and he says, through the miraculous power of God moving, the Holy Spirit himself, in the presence of Jesus himself. One of the phrases that really leapt out to me in a way that I hadn't seen it before this week. Um, and, and it's going to be a little bit different translation uh, in what I'm going to say and what's on the screen and from what I read earlier. Uh, what I read earlier, the angel says, this is like an old, this is an old translation. I'm old school, y'all. I can't get this Bible up. I've had it for too long, all right? But in this one, it says, for nothing is impossible with God. But I saw this in a fresh way in this, in this different version this week, where it says, no word from God will ever 
no word from God will ever fail. Those are both true statements. There's nothing impossible with God and no word from God will ever fail. But, but they strike me as so different this time in reading them. No word from God will ever fail. What a promise. And in making that statement, the angel is saying that to Mary and to Elizabeth in this story that they find themselves in, this immediate context of the story that is so hopeful. God has said this thing. It is impossible in every way you can imagine. And yet no word from God will ever fail. So encouraging. But it strikes me that in this moment, this isn't just a word of promise for Mary or for Elizabeth, but we see the reality of this statement taking place right in this moment. How many words from God throughout the history of the people of Israel have been these promises that I will not forget you. I will be with you. I will come and rescue you. I am your God and you are my people and I will never abandon you. I will keep my covenant to you forever. And all of these promises that God gives to his people, uh, a king in the line of David will sit on my throne and reign forever. All of these promises, the people living in darkness have seen a great light. The light is breaking in. So many promises and hopes that seem to be waning in the course of time that seemed like they were never going to come true. And now in Nazareth of all places, the angel says, all of those words, they're going to be fulfilled and God is going to do it. No word from God. Look back, count them all, count them all. No word from God will ever fail. They're going to be fulfilled in you. What a wild and ridiculous thought. And the most powerful part about that is the way that it is. The word himself became flesh and fulfilled them himself. The word became flesh and no word from God will ever fail. So wrapping up here, this response of Mary is such a challenge to every one of us. Let it be to me as you have said. Mary says, let your promise be fulfilled. I trust that. I trust you in what you said. I'm the Lord's servant. So I will do what he's asking me to do. The power of Mary's yes in this moment. We're still, still reeling from the ramifications of that. Let me ask you this question. Where is he asking you for a yes in your life? Maybe even right now, he's bringing some things to the top of your heart. You weren't even thinking about this, but now he's drawing it to the forefront of your mind. And he's saying, I've been pressing you on this. I've been bringing this up to you. And I'm asking you for a yes. Will you trust? Will you trust that favor is not that it's going to be easy, but that I'm going to be with you? Will you trust that favor means surrender? Will you trust me in that? 
Where is he asking you for a yes? Sometimes the most important prayer you can pray is simply one word, yes. Yes. Where is he pressing in on that with you today? Here's what yes ends up looking like. Let's pull up this image of Mary and Eve. Many of you have seen this before. We all have our different Advent and Christmas traditions. We bring out the wreath, we bring out a tree, we sing the same songs, we pull out the same books to read again, we go to the same places. This is one of mine right here, all right? I love coming back to this image this time of year and reflecting on it and contemplating this image. It is a simple drawing. This isn't going to be hanging in anyone's art museum anywhere. Simple drawing by a nun, but it's so powerful and it's so beautiful. And in the simplicity, I feel like there is so much going on. So we're going to pause for just a moment here. I'm going to invite you to reflect on this. There are things uh, that you're going to see. Uh, maybe your scriptural imagination is going to be on fire and you're going to see a lot of different things in this and notice different things. Maybe for you, you're just seeing what you see immediately. But just sit in it for a moment. Ask the Holy Spirit to open your eyes as you contemplate what is going on in this image between Mary This is what yes and surrender looks like. And you see in this moment of Mary's yes and Mary's surrender, so much restoration happening. Her yes brings about this restoration to so many no's. Her embrace of God's will brings about the restoration of so many rejections of his will. Her humility brings about the healing of so much pride. Her faith 
brings about healing of so much unbelief or trust or yes. Sometimes the most important prayer you can pray is simply yes. Where is he asking for a yes from you today? Maybe you sense that he's drawing you into a a time where you have decisions in front of you and it's there's so much fear about it. It's okay to ask how. Mary shows us that. You can ask him that. But still answer with a yes. Maybe there's a sense of a level of surrender of some spiritual area of your life that you feel like you have been holding on to. You feel like it's pressing and inviting for a yes. You're afraid of what it might mean. It's okay to ask how. He's not afraid of that. But give him your yes. Sometimes the most important prayer you can pray is yes. We see that Jesus says yes to his father in the garden the night before his crucifixion when he is wrestling with what it means for him to go to the cross. And he prays, Father, let this cup pass from me, yet not my will be done, but your will be done. He's praying to his father. He's also following in the footsteps of his mother. And he prays that prayer. And we're so grateful that Jesus answered this yes. Let this cup pass, but your will be done, not mine. 